Let me say a few brief things before I start my commentary on chapters 1 and 2 of Crime and Punishment. First, I know that many of you have read this novel before, so I ask you to please, in our discussion, avoid spoilers. Comment only on what we have already read, as if you are reading it for the first time. Second, it was brought to my attention that in the first two chapters I mispronounced Marmeladov. I said it Marmeladov, because I had found a resource that pronounced it that way, and since then switched to one in which I place greater trust. So, I will be pronouncing it Marmeladov from here out, and eventually I'll probably go back and edit the first two chapters, because I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And last, I have a confession to make. Writing focus summaries for crime and punishment is proving hard. It is hard in a very different way than Aerosmith was. With Aerosmith, it was difficult to decide what to include, because everything seemed to just exist on an even plane of episodic detail that didn't really admit of essentialization. With crime and punishment, it's difficult to decide what to leave out, because every detail seems to contribute so vitally to an integrated whole. I will do my very best to condense the chapter while still retaining what is most important. But at first, my summaries will probably err, as this one does, on the side of being too long. So, without further ado, a focus summary of chapters 1 and 2. As the story opens, a young man comes out of his garret and feels relief that he did not cross paths with his landlady. He is hopelessly in debt to her, and any time he sees her, he experiences a sick, frightened feeling of which he is ashamed. This young man has been living an overstrained, irritable, and utterly isolated existence, completely absorbed in himself and dreading to meet anyone at all. He is crushed by poverty, but he is troubled not by his debt, but rather by the threat of having to listen to the landlady's trivial gossip or pestering demands. Coming out in the street, he becomes acutely aware of his fears. He wants to attempt a thing like that, and yet he is frightened by trifles. He loses himself in mental chatter about whether he is truly capable of that. His nerves are strained by the insufferable stench of the Petersburg streets, and he looks with disgust upon the drunken men he meets continually. He walks along with his mind in a tangle and weak for lack of food. This young man is both exceptionally handsome and exceptionally shabbily dressed. He has such bitterness and contempt that he feels no shame wearing his rags in the street, except, perhaps, when he meets with former fellow students. But when a drunken passerby ridicules his hat, the young man clutches at it tremulously. He feels not shame, but terror, muttering to himself that such trifles can spoil the whole plan because people would remember it. He walks the 730 steps to his destination. He had counted them once when he was lost in hideous and daring dreams. 
but though he still jeers at himself for his impotence and indecision, he has begun to believe he can really do it, and to rehearse, and to feel a violent excitement at the possibility. He reaches a house let out in tiny tenements, and, glad to meet no one, slips up the dark back staircase. As he reaches the fourth story, he questions what it would be like if he were really to do it, given how afraid he is now. He is glad to see that the other fourth-floor tenant is moving out, leaving only the old woman. He rings the bell, and through his overstrained nerves, the tinkle of its chime reminds him of something. The old woman opens the door and peers mistrustfully into the corridor. Then she opens the door wider and lets him into the entry. She is a withered old woman with sharp, malignant eyes, greasy, grizzled hair, and a thin, long neck. The young man's expression renews her mistrust. He introduces himself as Raskolnikov, and reminds her that he had been there before, saying he is there on the same errand. She invites him in, and as he scans the room, he thinks that it will all be like that then, too, and tries to commit the arrangement of the room to memory. He notices how clean it all is, and says to himself that such cleanliness is always found in the homes of spiteful old women. He says he has brought something to pawn, and produces a silver watch, asking the old woman, whom he addresses as Aliona Ivanovna, how much she will give him for it. She haggles with him over the price, and reminds him that his last pledge is due, and he stifles the urge to storm out, reminding himself he had another object in coming. He notes where she keeps the keys, and when she goes to the other room, listens inquisitively to determine where she keeps her money. When he departs, he says ominously that he may bring her something else in a day or two. Coming out again on the street, he rebukes himself for having such an atrocious, filthy, loathsome idea. An intense repulsion tortures his heart. He stumbles along in confusion until he discovers he is standing next to a tavern, and he feels consumed by a burning thirst for beer. He drinks, and at once he feels a renewed strength of will. He chides himself for his earlier giddiness. Raskolnikov, who had been avoiding society of every sort and had spent a month in concentrated wretchedness, suddenly feels a longing for company and for a chance to rest in some other world. He sees across the room a man who looks like a retired government clerk and who appears to be in a state of agitation, and he feels an interest in him before even a word is spoken. The clerk, too, stares at Raskolnikov, as if anxious to talk to him. He looks at all the others in the tavern with a weary contempt. He is a man over fifty, bald, grizzled, and stout, with a face bloated from continual drinking, but with a light in his eyes as though of intense feeling, intelligence, and perhaps madness. His clothes are ragged and his face unshaven, 
but he seems still to cling to a trace of respectability. Finally, he addresses Raskolnikov loudly, resolutely, and grandiloquently, inviting him into conversation and introducing himself as Marmeladov, the titular counselor. Despite his earlier longing, Raskolnikov feels a habitual aversion to company. But Marmeladov pounces greedily on Raskolnikov, as if he had spoken to no one for a month. As Marmeladov begins his drunken yet still bold and fluent story, the tavern-goers snigger, and the innkeeper comes down to listen in a sort of bored amusement. It seems Marmeladov makes a habit of these speeches. Marmeladov says he has come from five nights sleeping on the hay barge, a story confirmed by the filth of his appearance. The innkeeper asks Marmeladov why he is not instead at his duty if he is in the service, and Marmeladov answers, to Raskolnikov and not to the innkeeper, that it is because he is a useless worm. He continues his drunken raving, telling Raskolnikov of the humiliation of asking for money from one you know will not and should not give it to you. He refers with a glance of uneasiness at Raskolnikov to his daughter's yellow ticket, a license to practice prostitution, while the boys at the counter snigger. He calls himself a pig, and his wife, Katerina Ivanovna, a lady, noble, magnanimous, and refined. He calls himself a beast by nature, and tells of how he sold his wife's stockings and her mohair shawl for drink, and how she caught cold and began spitting blood. He knows she is falling ill of consumption, and the more he thinks about it, the more he drinks, that he may suffer twice as much. He says that though in telling his tale he is making himself a laughing-stock before these idle listeners, he was compelled to share it with Raskolnikov, because he found in him a man of feeling and education, and one who seemed to be suffering a trouble of mind. He speaks more of his wife Katerina Ivanovna, that she was educated at a school for the daughters of noblemen, that now, living in poverty, there is nothing left to her but recollection of the past, that she had three children with her first husband, whom she married for love, and who left her a widow that it was the hopeless poverty in which she was left that prompted her to marry one as low as Marmeladov, who was a widower himself with a child of his own. He tried to be a good husband, he says, but after seeing he could not please his wife, and after losing his place in the service, he turned again to drink. He speaks of his daughter Sonia's mistreatment at the hand of her stepmother, about how she has been brought up poor and uneducated, and about how Katerina Ivanovna scorned her for living with them and doing nothing to help, while Marmeladov, meanwhile, lay drunk. And he tells him how, one night, Sonia put on her cape and went out, returned hours later, and put thirty roubles on the table, and then went over to the bed, covered herself in a shawl, and lay there, shivering. And then, how Katerina Ivanovna fell on her knees and kissed Sonia's feet, 
and fell asleep in her arms. Having been driven to prostitution, Sonia was then driven from their home by the landlady. After that, he says, she took a room with the tailor's family and returned to her own family by night only to give them what she could. Desperate, Marmeladov then pleaded with Ivan Afanasyevich to give him a job, and miraculously, he was taken back. Katerina Ivanovna at once began treating him like a king and boasting of his position, and Sonia got together the money needed for him to be properly dressed. When he brought home his earnings, Katerina Ivanovna greeted him with affection, even calling him her little poppet. He spent the evening dreaming of how he would dress his children and rescue Sonia from dishonor. And then, the very next day, he stole all the money from the box and left. Five days later, that very morning, he went to Sonia to ask her for more, and she gave it to him. He says that he is not to be pitied, but crucified. He says that in drink he seeks not merrymaking, but tears and tribulation. He says that God will forgive his sins and Sonia's, and will call them forth where they will stand without shame before him, and they will understand all. As Marmeladov sinks down on the bench in exhaustion, the men in the tavern mock him for talking himself silly. Marmeladov then stands up abruptly and tells Raskolnikov to come with him to Katerina Ivanovna. Raskolnikov wanted to go and had meant to help him. Marmeladov fears what he will find, but he does not fear Katerina Ivanovna's anger or blows. He longs for them. They come to a room at the top of the stairs, all in disorder and littered with rags. Katerina Ivanovna is there, slim and graceful, with flushed cheeks and parched lips, and breathing in nervous gasps. One young girl sleeps on the floor, her older brother being comforted by a still older sister while he shakes and cries, probably from having been beaten. When Marmeladov appears in the doorway and falls to his knees, Katerina Ivanovna shrieks that he is a criminal and frenziedly searches him, demanding the stolen money. The sleeping girl wakes, and the three children huddle together, trembling and crying in terror. Screaming in despair, she turns on Raskolnikov, says he should be ashamed for drinking with Marmeladov, and tells him to go away. As he does, he hears the neighbors laughing as she drags Marmeladov by the hair, and he shouts that it is a consolation to him. Raskolnikov then takes the change from his pocket and lays it on the window. Afterwards, on the stairs, he regrets having done so, but he is too ashamed to go back. He laughs to himself about how they will go again to Sonia, how they have wept over it and grown used to it, for man grows used to everything, the scoundrel. Then he wonders if perhaps he is wrong, and man is not a scoundrel, and all is prejudice and artificial barriers, and as it should be. 
The next in my post to the Facebook group was called On Method. I'd like to say a few words about how I intend to approach this novel, in case it is helpful to you. First, I will be careful to make observations and integrations without forming hasty or premature conclusions. This is a philosophical novel, and all of us run the danger of trying to too quickly interpret the meaning of the ideas we encounter. But Dostoevsky is a great mind and an intellectual innovator, which means that we have to be cautious neither to oversimplify his views nor to pigeonhole them as ideas with which we are already familiar. How to strike the right balance between active-minded interpretation and patient observation is an art that I am still learning, and one we can work on together. But for now, I wanted to at least alert you to the fact that it is possible to be overly ambitious, to try to understand too much too soon, and thereby, ultimately, to undermine your understanding. Second, and related, I want to warn you against making your central purpose to judge the characters, or Dostoevsky himself, rather than understanding them. I wrote about this issue previously in a post called Suspending Philosophic Disbelief, and I will link to it from the Facebook group. For now, I will just repeat this point. Always wearing the cap of the philosophic detective and intellectual critic can lead you to scorn any work of literature that does not accord neatly with your own worldview, and can deprive you of the soul-expanding benefit of some of the greatest minds of the greatest authors who have ever lived. Those authors have something very valuable to offer a thoughtful reader, even when their ideas are wrong corrupt even. The very scale of their thinking helps to expand yours. The acuteness of their perception helps you to sharpen your vision. However wrong certain of their fundamental ideas are, they will make countless brilliant observations that are categorically right. Just this weekend, I was reading about Dostoevsky in a book called An Outline of Russian Literature and the author Mark Slonim put the point well. He said, quote, It is irrelevant whether the reader agrees with Dostoevsky's view of man, with his religion, or with his ideas. What makes Dostoevsky one of the most modern of writers is the fire of his exaltation and negation, the utter boldness with which he investigates the fundamentals of life and society. Unquote. Let's strive to see the world through the eyes of Dostoevsky, and later to determine whether and how his outlook shapes our own. The next of my posts was called Raskolnikov's Divided Soul. To me, one of the most striking features of the first two chapters is the seeming contradictions in Raskolnikov's character. As I mentioned already, I think it is important to be careful not to think I should already be able to put some sort of ready-made label on him and conclude that I know his soul. But it is also important to carefully inventory and contemplate those seeming contradictions. I'll share with you a few that I observed, and I would be interested in hearing others from you.
He is exceptionally handsome, slim, well-built, with beautiful dark eyes and a refined face, and at the same time so badly dressed that even a man accustomed to shabbiness would have been ashamed to be seen in the street in such rags. He feels such contempt for and bitterness toward his fellow men that he feels no shame wearing his rags in the street. But it is a different matter when he encounters former fellow students. As he walks the steps of his rehearsal, making his way to the old woman's tenement house, he feels a violent excitement and the conviction that his hideous dream can really be attempted. But he climbs the back stairs with a sinking heart and a nervous tremor. As he leaves the apartment of Alyona Ivanovna, a feeling of intense repulsion tortures his heart, and he scorns himself for the filthy, disgusting, loathsome things he is capable of. But then, after a moment to collect himself, a piece of bread, and a glass of beer, he calls all that nonsense and physical derangement, and feels again that his mind is clear and his will is firm. He exudes disgust and contempt for his fellow men, and for months he has avoided all society, and yet he finds himself overwhelmed by a desire to be with other people, and an intense thirst for company. He listens to Marmaladov's sorrowful tale with a sick sensation, and he feels vexed that he had come there. And yet, when Marmaladov leaves the tavern to go to Katerina Ivanovna, we are told that Raskolnikov had for some time been wanting to go, and he had meant to help him. After observing the pitiful scene of Katerina Ivanovna and her suffering children, he impulsively leaves them the change from his pocket. And yet, moments later, he regrets it, wishes he could go back, and laughs at himself for the stupid thing he has done. And he wonders whether all men are scoundrels, or whether they aren't, and instead it is all prejudice and artificial terrors. I won't claim yet to know exactly what this all means, but it clearly means something. And the last of my posts is called We Meet Marmaladov. The first time I read this novel, I wondered why we experienced this prolonged diversion from the plot as Raskolnikov listened to the rantings of this strange man in the underground tavern. Now, reading it again, carefully, I cannot comprehend that reaction. But I confess it to you in case anyone else felt the same way. Some in our group have speculated about the role Marmaladov will play in the story. Does he seek out Raskolnikov in particular as the receiver of his confession for some important reason? Is he a cautionary tale about conscience? Will the lives of his family be somehow intertwined with Raskolnikov's? I have the same questions myself, and I'm sure we will learn the answers. There's a lot that could be said about Marmaladov's sorrowful tale, but I want to focus on the effect it had on me. Please feel free to share any thoughts you have about his story in the Facebook discussion. Repeatedly, throughout Marmaladov's story, 
we are made aware of the reactions to it among the innkeeper and the boys at the bar. His conversation seemed to excite a general though languid interest among them, and the boys immediately fell to sniggering. As he laments his fate as a beast by nature, the innkeeper yawns. As he reaches the most desperately pitiful moment of his story, when he goes to Sonia for more money after squandering his own and leaving his family helpless, sick, and starving, one of the newcomers to the tavern guffaws as he says, You don't say she gave it to you. When he collapses of pained exhaustion at the conclusion of his story, they say with dismissive mockery that he has talked himself silly. My feeling, reading this scene, is that I, in some form, could have been one of those men in the tavern, and that Dostoevsky knows it. I felt like he was putting his arm around my shoulders, taking me down those tavern stairs, and saying, I know what you think you know, but here, look closer. And what did he want me to see? He wanted me to experience Marmaladov's life in all its sordid and agonizing details. He wanted me to witness Katerina Ivanovna's pain and the injustices she has endured and the cruelty she has inflicted and her tortured regrets. He wanted me to know about the silent suffering of Sonia and to see her shivering beneath that shawl, having sacrificed herself for her family. He wanted me to know that Marmaladov does not drink because he seeks merrymaking. He drinks because he seeks tears and tribulation. He feels for himself an intense and bitter loathing. He believes he is a scoundrel, a worm, and a pig, and a beast by nature. He longs to suffer the outrage of those he has wronged, to be beaten and scorned and crucified. He wants me to see that Marmaladov believes he will find forgiveness in the eyes of God. I saw it all, and it wrenched my heart. I wept for them, and especially for Sonia. The broader meaning of this scene, I'm sure, will become clear as the novel goes on. Meanwhile, I am reminded again of my daughter Greta's phrase, that Dostoevsky shows us our own faults in vulgar detail and without an averted eye. The eyes of the men in the tavern were averted, but Dostoevsky made us look.